Okay, so this again is biblical counseling issues, and the goal of our class is to go through different counseling issues. As you see, I gave you a sheet of some potential subjects that we can cover, and I'm always interested in what might be most meaningful to you, so I have asked you to maybe fill in the top five that seem relevant, and then I'll take a look at those and we'll plan accordingly. But we're starting the course with a little discussion on bioethics in the Bible, and specifically last week we started with the subject of euthanasia. And of course we had mentioned that this term literally is called the right to die. Um, it is really a war of ideologies, and um, we know that there are many who would strongly propose that life can and should be ended at certain times, that there should be aid in dying or death with dignity. These are terms we've often heard. Um, and we know that uh, euthanasia is not you new. It has been around since uh, the Greeks. They struggled with it. Plato was one who approved of this. Under Constantine in 33, 330 A.D., we know that uh, in, uh, euthanasia was suppressed. And, um, and then we got into why euthanasia today is being promoted. Why do we see such a surge today in euthanasia? And one of the primary reasons is fear of technology, that we have the technology today to keep people alive much longer by machines, even though there's no hope of recovery. We hear of this all the time, that people are considered brain dead, but through heart and lung machines, we can keep the heart beating, we can keep blood flowing. And so the idea is, well, is there really life there? And people are afraid of that, and I can understand that. Technology has become a key issue as to why this is being promoted more. Also, we said, remember, that there's a pain of the dying, there, there is uh, the pain of the dying process. People fear the dying process. And Specifically, they don't want to go through long, protracted illnesses where they're suffering and they're afraid that if, so to speak, nature takes its course, that that could mean a lot of pain and agony. And so they feel like, hey, look, it's just uh, kind of my right to, um, to end it or to have someone else end it or someone else determines that they're in too much pain and suffering so that they want to end it. Do we have any more copies of three and four for some of the new people that just came in or not really? Any more of those? Did I? Okay. I just want, here we go. Here's a couple of, yeah. <laughs> my, my, good morning. My uh, notes are messed up, so we'll go as far as we can with what we have. I'm just kind of reviewing now, guys, from what we did last week. I don't want to spend too much time. Um, but we talked about the fact that um, really modern medicine has blurred the lines between uh, hastening death and allowing nature to take its course. And, um, and the problem with active euthanasia, of course, like we said, it, it eliminates any hope of recovery. Being in ministry for as many years as I have, I have seen people recover that were not supposed to. And I'm sure if you've been a doctor or a nurse or worked in any medical field for any length of time, you have seen God at work, where people were not supposed to live, shouldn't have lived, but they did. Um, also, there's the possibility of coercion. We're seeing this today. Um, one of the former governments, governors of Colorado made a stunning statement. He said that uh, it's a duty uh, for, the terminally Ill, for terminally ill patients, they have a duty to die and get out of the way. This is the governor uh, of, of Colorado, Richard D. Lamb, who made that statement. So that's a scary kind of thing, you know. And um, 
So we need to make a distinction between life-taking and death-permitting. And so we want to get into today, um, basically, and we talked about physician-assisted suicide, we talked about um, some truths about euthanasia, but today I want to get into euthanasia in the Bible, and what does what do the scriptures have to say about euthanasia? And the first thing that we see is, Foundational to a biblical perspective on euthanasia is the proper understanding of the sanctity of human life. And one of the things that you will never hear many who propose euthanasia is they will not talk about the sanctity of life. And God speaks very clearly in his word about the sanctity of life. The Bible teaches there is dignity and value to human life. Uh, It teaches that human life is sacred that it is worthy of being saved. And I want you to consider what the Bible says about the sanctity of human life. And notice what we see here. First of all, we are created, right, in the image of God. And this is a unique creation. Uh, Man is a unique creation in that he is the only one created in the image of God. And when we say he was created in the image of God, what do we mean? What do we mean by that? Okay, we reflect his character. That's certainly absolutely. We we share some of his attributes. Absolutely. We aren't mini gods, are we? We aren't God. There's no deity in us, but we share some of the character of God, the attributes of God. We share the conscience of God to some extent. We have the ability to reason, to consciously understand good from evil. So we are created in the image of God, and that is a sanctifying creation. We are a sanctified creation. In Psalm 139, of course, the Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, This is unique to man, and you'll remember in Psalm 139 that David expounds on the attributes of God, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. And in all of God's attributes, he says one of the things that God did was made us fearfully and he made us wonderfully. Notice that only man has a God consciousness. Um, This is unique to man alone. No other creature has a God consciousness. Um, You know, people have said, well, you can train dogs and they can respond to you and you can train animals. And that's certainly true. But they don't have a God consciousness. There, there is no consciousness of that creature to a holy God. And that is unique to man alone. And notice that even though man is finite, he possesses the elements of personality which are similar to God, such as thinking and feeling and a will. This is another thing. And I've given you the scriptural references there. I know that's kind of near the bottom of this. This is another thing, that man has a moral nature. There is a sense in which there is a morality in man. And even for the unsaved, we see this. There is a morality in man. Is it possible for unsaved people to do good things? Why is that? Why can unsaved people do good things? Okay, because all men are image bearers of God, saved or unsaved. That's very important to understand, and that's the right theology on that. All men are image bearers of God. And so there is an ability for unsaved people to do good things. Uh, they can be very benevolent. They can be, but what's the difference between the saved and the unsaved? Where, where, does it, where do we draw the distinction? They do it for themselves. 
Okay, when it comes to morality, okay, can you expound on that a little bit? There's no reverence to God. There, there is no vertical aspect to it. Absolutely right. There is no reverence to God. There isn't, there isn't a, a conviction, a conscience towards a holy God. So, for example, when I got saved at 16... Uh, my mom was working pretty good as an unbeliever at 16, I can tell you that, okay? But when I got saved, there was a consciousness that came over me that I would say these things and I would think, wait a minute, there's, there's something wrong with this. I didn't have that sense before. I wasn't worried this way, I was worried this way. And coming to Christ, there was that moral accountability that the Spirit of God that indwells us activates when we come to Christ. There's that understanding that, wait a minute here, I serve a higher power. You know, it doesn't matter what it people think here it matters how this works so very important when we talk about the moral nature of of man notice also that God endowed every human being with a spirit and a soul and a body first Thessalonians 523 now I'm not here to argue the theological points of whether you're a dichotomist or a trichotomist okay and yeah yeah Bobby you can you can expound on that next week when you get that in seminary okay uh, so I'm not here, but, but 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says that we have a soul. We are indwelt by God. And, and, um, and so uh, we can relate to God. And because we can relate to, to God, okay, man is truly sacred. He is distinct from the rest of creation. Now, unfortunately, the biblical perspective on human life has severely eroded in our modern Western culture. And this is the key of everything we're going to talk about today. This is the mother load right here. Instead of talking about the sanctity of human life, which is biblical, we now talk about the quality of human life, which is not biblical. Do you see the difference there? There is a huge difference between the sanctity of life and the quality of life. And in euthanasia, of course, many have taken it upon themselves to determine what your quality life is or isn't, and then to determine whether or not that's of any value. We can't do that if we talk about the sanctity of human life. Okay, now we need to clarify some things, because that probably raises more questions in your mind than it answers. Yes? That's exactly what they had in Nazi Germany. That, right, exactly. Sure. They determined who was the Aryan race, and who fit, and everybody else. Right, yeah. And in that sense, it wasn't the quality of life in a, in, a, in, a, in a physical way, like in a health way. It was just that you're not, you're not a race of people worth keeping alive, which is very scary. And by the way, that hasn't gone away today. Genocide is alive and well. Um, and it's a horrible thing. Pardon me? Yeah, evolution ultimately reduces down to that thought that the survival of the fittest, you know, and there are some who deserve to survive and others that don't. And when that creeps into and filters into the human race, that becomes very, very deadly. It becomes very dangerous, but it, but it has. So we want to talk about the sanctity of human life as opposed to the quality of human life. Um. Now, those who support euthanasia no longer see life as sacred. They don't see it as worthy of being saved. Patients are evaluated, and life-saving treatment is frequently denied based on a subjective and arbitrary standard for the supposed quality of life. In other words, they determine a standard that they say your life is worth living or not, and it's very subjective. And 
it is very dangerous. For example, the scriptures teach that the disabled, retarded, or infirmed have a special place in God's world, don't they? Well, someone look up John 11, verses 1 through 4. Someone else, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And let's, let's read this. First of all, John 11, 1 through 4. And John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Okay, somebody have John 11? Okay, would you read that, Robert? Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Okay, now let's stop there and just think through this from a humanistic standpoint and then from a biblical standpoint. If any medical doctor back then had probably come to Lazarus in his state, what do you think they would have said? You're going to die. <laughs> you know. And Lazarus would have died. And obviously, um, we realize the supernaturalness of Jesus raising him from the dead. But the thing that we need to see there is that Jesus said, this is not an illness that leads to death, but for the glory of God. The, the reason that Lazarus was raised was not so that he could go, wow, that was a trip. But so that God would be glorified, so that Jesus could authenticate himself. And this is one of the first inklings that we get in Scripture, that illness is often engineered by God in order to glorify himself. And, and he uses it for our good. Um, so this is something that's foreign to the world, and this is something that would be foreign to those who are outside of Christ, because we don't look at things like that. You know, when we see illness or when we see um, some kind of mental handicap or when we see physical handicaps, we tend to think, man, you know, what value is there? That's the way our society thinks. And God looks at this very differently. How about um, John 9, 1 through 3? Norm, do you have that? Yep. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now think of that, how amazing that is. This man wasn't born blind because of his mother or father, but so that the works of God could be displayed in him. It's a mind-boggling thought to me that this man could have been born blind and lived all of his life that way for this very moment. Now that goes against the way we often think. But for this very moment, so that God could be glorified. And you know, what an amazing truth that is. That God sees value. That don't, don't think, you know, that the disciples were ready to say, well, you know, man, this guy, you know, sins of his parents, and you know, he must have done something wrong. Wow. They were ready to just cast him aside. But Jesus said, wait a minute here. Nope. No, there's a purpose in this. There's a purpose in this in this illness, in this blindness, in this handicap. So we need to look at it that way. Now, <clears throat> let's see. Is that the next slide? Let's see if I'm in the right place here. So, 
I was going to say that today that medical personnel judge a person's fitness for life based on the perceived quality of life or lack of such quality. So what does that mean? Um, it means that if a life is judged not worthy to be lived, other people or the patients themselves feel obligated to end their lives. Are we on the right one or not? Yeah. Where am I? I got to go back one. Oh yeah, okay. I went. I went too far. Sorry. Now, I believe this is sinful because it violates important principles of Scripture. First of all, society notice has no authority to place an arbitrary standard on the quality above God's of quality, rather above God's absolute standard of human value and worth. That is a very dangerous business for man to get involved with. And we do not have the authority. Who has the authority over life and death? The Lord. The creator, the creator not us. And so this is a very difficult thing. And it does not mean that people will no longer need to make difficult decisions about treatment and care. Listen, we're going to talk about this. There are some very difficult decisions to make, especially when you're dealing with terminal illness or you're dealing, there are very important decisions to make. So it doesn't mean that we don't have some tough decisions to make, but it does mean that these decisions must be guided by an objective absolute standard of human worth. In other words, we cannot desanctify human life for our own convenience or for our own cause. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over life and death and judgment. We see that everywhere. And I want us to consider some of the following verses where we see that. And um, I gave you some of these verses. Um, notice Job, and I'll just kind of go through them. Um, you can just look these up on your own. I'm just going to tell you what the verses are real quickly, okay, so that you have an idea uh, of what they are, but Job 121, it says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Remember what Job said? Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord has given and taken away. God had the right to do this. And this is the most severe case we see in Scripture. Come on in, you guys, have a seat. We'll move over for you or move down for you. Or here, right up here. Or you can be a, you know, no back row Baptist in here. <laughs> hey, is. Hi, Jeeja. Uh, let's see, three and four here. I don't know where we are in this. My notes are messed up today, so anyway. So Job 121, the Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. We see in Deuteronomy 32, 39, it says, Now see that I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Very powerful words in Deuteronomy. Then we go down to Psalm 139, and it says, In thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me. We know that God ordains our days. God ordains the number of days that we have. The very hairs of our head are numbered. In Ephesians 1.11, we have been predestined, what? According to his purpose. Here's another thing that talks to the sanctity of life. We've been predestined. You know, when you look at people who have handicaps, who are in illnesses, is it true that people can have suffering ministries? Yeah. I mean, God uses all for his glory. So we have to understand that. In Job 30, 23, it says, For I know that 
You will bring me to death into the house of meeting for all living. Job understood that his life was in the hands of a holy God. In Psalm 68.20, it says, God is to us a God of deliverance, and to God the Lord belongs escape from death. So we see that God is the one who can prolong life. He is the one that has the keys to life and death. And then in Ecclesiastes 8.8, 8, it says, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. That's about as specific as it gets. And then uh, there are some, some more verses in there, 1 Corinthians, and I'll let you guys look up the rest of the verses, but I just kind of wanted to give you a taste of God's sovereignty over life and over death. Isaiah 45.7, I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Amen. You see the sovereignty of God at work. And, and God is sovereign over life and death as much as he's sovereign over everything else. Mm-hmm. Now these verses are important um, because notice they establish God's authority over life and death. And euthanasia is man's way of usurping that authority from God. When we take these things into our own hands, it is a way of usurping God's authority. We have to be careful of that. Now at this point, I think we have to raise an important ethical and moral question. If God has complete authority over life and death, then isn't intervention to heal just as sinful as intervention to end someone's life? And this is what it boils down to. So we can say this, look, is is this idea of, of us intervening to simply heal just as bad as ending someone's life? I mean, isn't Isn't that just as interfering on on that end of things? Shouldn't we just let go and let God? And by the way, there are many who espouse this. What religions can you think of that would espouse this? Christian science. Christian science, absolutely. Mary Baker Eddy, who laid down in their doctrine that medicine was taboo. They would not allow healing of any kind. What about blood transfusions? Jehovah's Witness disallowed blood transfusions. Uh, Many infants, many young children have died because parents have withheld blood transfusion. So there are those who have literally decided that, look, any kind of interference to heal, any kind of interference to the body is really um, an interference with God's sovereign will over us. So this becomes a moral dilemma. It becomes an issue for us, and it's something we have to deal with. So let's talk about this a little bit. It's a critical issue. Um, I put in here that many um, cults, false religions have based their doctrines around this issue, and we've already talked about Christian science, um, believe that intervention against any disease or illness is sinful, Um, those that have denied blood transfusions. um, Some people will say that illness is nothing more than a state of mind. There are religions that will actually say, well, your illness is a state of mind. Um, well, when I have the flu, it sure doesn't feel like a state of mind, does it to you? I mean, it's just like, when I'm sick, it's like, it may be in my head, but it's a lot more than that. Uh, but yet, that is often taught. So we see that being taught. Um, yes, you may. How does that work for, for mental, um, like depression? Because you hear people say, well, if God wants me to be healed of bipolar, right. I don't need to take medications. Right. Or I don't... 
that yeah, that no, it isn't. But I, and I think that falls into the same category of how we need to look at medicine in general. So what do we do, for example, if there is a pathological illness that can be defined, if there is a pathological disease like diabetes or a, a heart murmur or, you know, a, a, a cancer, what do we do in a case like that? You know, so because we know that the physical can often affect the emotional as well, can't we? For example, emotional problems can arouse through uh, different um, hormone levels being off, thyroid problems, uh, help me out here. Um, Robert will tell you uh, different things that can cause an imbalance in the body. I know, but that can also be caused by stress. Yeah, I have that problem. Um, <laughs> it's my It's my middle name now, Jack Stresser Jenkins. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, those kinds of things can cause physical problems as well. That's for sure. It can go the other way. But many faith healing churches believe that God only heals through anointed leaders. We get that kind of idea or the gift of healing and thus they shun hospitals and doctors altogether. It's always interesting to me, every time I go to Clearwater, all my kids live over in Clearwater, you'll, you'll get this, Bobby. And, and there's a McMullen Booth Road, this road, and, and there's a, a hospital there. Uh, what is it? Countryside Hospital, right? On McMullen Booth. And right across the street from the hospital is a faith healing church. And they'll say, you know, they have like this big sign and billboards, you know, faith healing tonight, you know, 7 o'clock. And I'm looking over at the hospital, I'm thinking, well, why don't you just like, move it over there and empty this place out and have them all come over here, you know. Anyway, so we see that kind of stuff. Um, so the answer to the question, like... I'm not there yet, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I, the first paragraph, when, when we're talking about um, the intervention to heal, right. I think there is, a, even as we try to get better... There is a limit that God says, you know, like, for instance, we had uh, Nancy over at the other church that did everything in the book to yeah. heal. She did what she could, but God right. said, no, exactly. this will prevail because it is my will. Absolutely. So I don't think, to answer this, it, uh, intervention to heal is not as simple as intervention to end someone's right. life. Right. Yeah. And we want to try to prove that biblically. And, and I think that would be a good summation. In other words, intervention for healing, I do not believe in any way, shape, or form is sinful. And, but we want to look at this biblically and try to prove, oh, how, how, can we, how can we form an apologetic for this? How would we approach someone who might say, well, you're wrong. You know, what you're doing is wrong. What if we talk a, to a Jehovah's Witness or to someone from Christian Science or whatever? How can we, how can we what, what arguments biblically could we present? Um, but I'm just, again, making a case for those who would not agree with this either way. Added to this issue is uh, God's sovereignty. He, they would say that if God is sovereign, and he is, how dare we meddle in his affairs, especially when it comes to any kind of illness or disease or suffering or pain. Uh, if God is sovereign and he allows it, then it must be right. And so this is often the, the thought process that goes on. Now, uh, let me be clear about this. Um, what I feel biblical truth is, is presented here, it is absolutely sinful and wrong to actively take a human life. I believe that the Bible is very clear about that. But it is equally sinful and wrong to deny medical care and compassion to those who are afflicted with illness or disease when we have the means to improve their health or to alleviate suffering. Now again, I'm making a statement and I want to try to then flush this out so we can prove this biblically, so we can see does this carry any water. Uh, this is not 
a compromise of God's sovereignty, nor does it violate any biblical doctrine or precept, nor does it negate any, the many things, rather, that God does accomplish through our pain and suffering. And God does work through pain and suffering. We need to understand this. <clears throat> uh, let's see, where am I here? I guess I need to turn this. I believe that the Bible teaches that we have a moral and ethical obligation to render this kind of care and compassion. And what I've tried to do here is give you 12 reasons why I believe the Bible would endorse the use of medicine. In other words, is there any scriptural evidence we have that we could substantiate what we're saying? Well, the first one, and I think very important, is Jesus himself healed. I mean, you look all through the Gospels, Matthew 4, 23 in particular, we see Jesus healing all over the place. Now, if healing was sinful, why would Jesus do that? Right? Jesus gave the apostles the ability to heal, did they not? In fact, Peter raised one from the dead. That's pretty cool. So we see that Jesus himself healed. He didn't say that it was wrong. He didn't say that you shouldn't do that. Secondly, and if you have any comments on any of these, just feel free to pipe in. God says that the sick are to call for the elders to be prayed over and anointed with oil for the purpose of healing. In other words, there, is, there are times when illness is sin engendered, right? And God doesn't say, well, don't pray for healing. He says, no, have the elders come over them, anoint them with oil. In fact, this anointing was considered a form of medicine in ancient times. When we read in the scriptures in James chapter 5 about this anointing of oil, we see that that was... Um, considered a form of healing. Number three, Jesus commanded the apostles to heal in their ministry. We see this in Matthew 10, 5 through 8, that Jesus commanded them to heal. Now, that would go against anyone who said that healing is sinful. I mean, if Jesus is commanded, Jesus never violates his word. The word of God is never inconsistent with the action of God. It, it, it can't be. Number four, we are not to be passive with those who are suffering. Can someone read 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5? Anybody have that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. What, a, what an amazing verse that is. And it's very straightforward, isn't it? That God, our God is a God of comfort. And it doesn't say, well, I'm the comforter, but you guys butt out. It says what? I'm the God of comfort, and you're to comfort others with the comfort that I give you. We are to comfort others. We are to have compassion. We know this is, again, taught throughout the scriptures. We're not to be, uh, you know, aloof to others. We're not to be... Uh, evading others. We are to show care and compassion. So we're not passive to those who suffer. Heaven forbid. Notice also that healing was a spiritual gift. We see that in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 9. Healing was a spiritual gift. Um, in the early days of Pentecost, the gift of healing was given. And why was that gift given? To establish the legitimacy of Amen. Absolutely. It wasn't given to wow people. It wasn't given to be, you know, some spectacular man-made um, 
event to boast in. It was given to authenticate the person and work of Christ. Now again, I believe very strongly uh, I am a cessationist and I don't believe that some of the gifts continued, but nevertheless, this was a spiritual gift and we know that men healed. You can't deny that. Yes? What's the definition of cessationist? Meaning that some of the gifts that were given back in the apostolic age ended because of the fact that they were no longer needed. So I would, for example, put the spiritual gifts that have ended into that, the gift of healing, the gift of tongues, I would say those are not used today, obviously the way they were used back in the uh, time of Pentecost, because again, with the complete revelation of Scripture, those gifts became not necessary. So, right, so, so the completion of the canon of Scripture uh, really revealed all and completely to us the person and work of Christ, rendering some of those things unnecessary. But again, the point of it is, is that it was a gift. Healing was a gift. Number six, Luke was a physician, and never is there a hint that God commanded him to stop practicing medicine. One of the great things, Luke's gospel is one of my favorites, because in Luke's gospel, we read about the humanity of Christ. You know, every gospel has its own flavor. Like, for example, what would Matthew, what is the theme of Matthew's gospel? Anybody know? The kingship of Christ, right. And it's written primarily to a Jewish audience. The kingship of Christ. How about Mark? The servanthood of Christ, right. We see Christ, the suffering servant. In Luke, we see the humanity of Christ. And how about John? The gospel of belief, right. We see the authenticity of the gospel of Christ is our Savior. That's why we often take people to John, right, that are new, because we want them to understand belief. And that's the gospel that tells us. So we see that Luke was never told to stop. Um, in fact, he was referred to as the beloved physician by the Apostle Paul. Not the, you know, terrible physician. Number seven. Healing was paramount in authenticating Jesus' ministry and his claim to be the Son of God. Uh, and again, we see this in Matthew 12. We've kind of discussed this a little bit, but... These things were done to authenticate the ministry of Christ. Uh, healing, very important. Number eight, the Apostle John prayed for good health for believers. 3 John 1, 2. Uh, the Apostle himself prayed that, and we pray for the health of individuals all the time, don't we? We have prayer requests and inevitably we'll get a slew that revolve around the health of an individual. Number nine, um, when Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of eating with tax gatherers and sinners, he said it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And although Jesus was talking about a self-righteous sinner's need for salvation, Jesus implies that the sick need a physician. Um, so the need of salvation by a sinner is a natural comparison to a sick person's need for a doctor. So we see there again a comparison there. Uh, it's just a straightforward analogy. Number 10. I guess I have to switch this, don't I? In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan's efforts to heal a half-dead man were commended by Christ. Remember the Samaritan? And, and God commended him for what he did. Uh, took care of that man and nursed him back to health. Luke 10, 30 through 37. Pastor Jack, yes. one thing about that is that the people who let the man um, stay healed yeah. in the story were 
righteous, holy people in my reduced estimation. Amen. And their action was condemned. Yeah. So it wasn't just that the foreigner, yeah. Yeah. in this context, that the foreigner yeah. was the one who made effort to heal, but that the people who supposedly were following God the opposite. Absolutely. In fact, that's a great point, Ryan, is that by not helping, they were actually condemned, you know, as being self-righteous and uncaring. And, and I should have brought that out. That's a, it's a great insight that Ryan brought out, that it's, it's not just that God uh, commended the man who helped, but that he condemned those who, who didn't help. Good point. Okay, number 11. In the pair, oh, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, we are to be proactive in showing mercy and compassion to those in need. And again, we see that in Luke. And then finally, number 12. The Apostle Paul advised Timothy to no longer drink water exclusively, but to use a little wine for the sake of his stomach. We, did I get that right? Little wind. The apostle no longer drink water, but use a oh I, I meant to put wine. Sorry, it shouldn't be wind. Yeah, right. Use a little. So fans are are definitely biblical. All right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Put sake up there. Whatever you want to put up there. Yeah. Put your put your beverage of choice there. Okay. A little nip of the grape, as it were. Okay. Okay. So, sorry about that. Poor Paul. Sick to his stomach all the time. Okay. So let's uh, move on then. Why life is worth living? Why is it that we place such a high value on human life? First of all, notice that we are stewards, not owners of the life that God has given us. We do not, we have been purchased with a price. We don't own ourselves. This is a, a hard concept in a society such as ours where, you know, the independent, rugged, solo person with no strings attached is, is edified and glorified in our society. Um, Americans by nature don't like to think that they're not in control of themselves. Would you agree with that? And everything in our society is geared to telling you you know what, you're independent, you make your own decisions, you, you forge your own path, you become your own man. And the scriptures teach us just the opposite. We are stewards over not only our own lives, but the lives of others. You know, it's just like being a pastor. Being a pastor doesn't mean that I have a, that I have a commanding reign over you. I am what? I'm an under-shepherd. And God has said to me, I am charging you to take care of my sheep, not your sheep. That's a real serious charge. You're not my sheep. You're God's sheep, and I'm just trusted as the gatekeeper here. You know, so that when he returns, we hope we can say we tried to do the best we could, Lord, to take care of your sheep. I'm not the owner. I'm just the steward. I'm just here to facilitate. Also notice that life is God's gift. We are created in his image. This is something that we cannot lose sight of. We've said already that God is sovereign over life and death and judgment. And we've given some of those verses that you see there already. Then to assist someone in suicide is to commit murder. It's to break God's commandments. And we see that in Exodus 20, 13. Thou shalt not kill. And you'll remember in the Hippocratic Oath, which by the way was something that really stymied euthanasia when that came out, 
What, what is the nature of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take? To do no harm, absolutely, to do no harm, but to help. I don't know all of it, but I know that it starts off that way. I'm sorry? To first do no harm, right. This is another one we often don't think of. God's purposes are beyond our understanding. And we often appeal to God as to why something has happened. You know, I've learned to stop asking why and just to, again, trust the Lord in what happens. You know, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. There are times when God does things that I have no clue. You know, when someone comes into my office and they've lost a loved one or there has been a tragedy, the best thing I can do is put my arms around them and just weep with them. Because sometimes words just get in the way. You know, when my granddaughter got cancer at two years old, and that doctor came in and I took one look at his face and I knew right then and there this was not going to be a good prognosis. You know, our family just wept violently but we never asked why. We just said, well, Lord, this is what you've given us. This is where we are in life. And now help us to glorify you through what we have to do. Because we just don't understand. And I, I, there's, do you ever understand everything that God does? I don't. And it goes along with the next one, that we forget that our minds, oh, we forget uh, that our minds are finite, right? God's mind is infinite. And so to decide on another's life is not our decision to make. How do we decide as accurately as the counsel of God what God is doing with a life? You have to be very careful there. And we see that in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Our lives belong to God. We should glorify God with our lives. And there's no glory for God when we practice euthanasia. When we kill based upon our own understanding. Now notice this too, that illness certainly causes great sadness, it leads to pain, but it doesn't justify us moving beyond this. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, about this aspect of it. Because there are some tough moral decisions to make, aren't there, when it comes to euthanasia. Um, and just because a person is ravaged with illness, um, which results in diminished level of human ability or cognitive thinking, it doesn't give us a license to take a life. So in other words, if somebody's ability is diminished or their thinking is diminished, it doesn't give us the right or license to take a life. And again, we don't desire our worth from men, but from God. Now, let's talk about an important issue, because here's where the rubber really meets the road. What about suffering? Because we have to talk about suffering. And this is where the big rub comes. First of all, notice that God's dominion is over all aspects of life, including suffering. We don't have time to flesh this out, but if you want to do a great study in Scripture, study God's purposes in suffering. Suffering is never, ever, ever wasted. It isn't as though God brings suffering upon us and goes, oh, I never thought that was going to happen. Or, man, this got out of control here. Suffering always accomplishes a purpose. Now again, none of us desire to suffer. I don't know about you, I'm not a, a natural martyr by, 
by nature, are you? I mean, I, I don't lay down on the railroad tracks and see if I'm going to get hit by a train. Um, I, I don't like pain, actually, too much. Um, so I try to avoid it at all costs. Anybody in that category? Uh, I don't look for suffering. I sure don't find it. But, you know, for all of us, isn't it true that suffering has come to all of us at one time or another? And it's come in different forms, hasn't it? It might be an illness. It, it, it might be a, a crisis of some kind. Um, suffering can be physical. It can be emotional. Suffering comes in all different forms. But God is over all. Um, now, if suffering is not relieved by medical means, we see it as from the hand of God. In other words, I want to, uh, to state that we should do everything we can to alleviate suffering. One of the most fun things for me when I go to the doctor and I need to have a procedure is when I hear him say this, we're going to give you sodium pentothal. I love sodium pentothal. It is my friend. Because it puts you out just like that. Like, I, I love that, you know, when they just put you out. Um, when I'm getting a tooth drilled and, and they give you a shot of Novocaine, don't we love that? I mean, aren't we glad we didn't live 100 years ago when, like, you know, they just said, you know, bite down on a block of wood and, and see what happens? So if we can alleviate, alleviate suffering, we do. But notice that the, one of the purposes of suffering, a major purpose, is for sanctification. God purifies us. God cleanses us through suffering. Suffering has a very cleansing effect. Um, and isn't it true that when, when we've been in sin, for example, and God chastens us heavily and we suffer for it, it has a way of bringing a new reverence for God, a new awareness of God, a new understanding, a new appreciation. I mean, I have, in my Christian walk, many times said, Lord, you know what? I want to repent of what I just did, and you should, you, you'd have every right to kill me for this. Anybody ever thought that? Or is it just me? Like, you've had a right to kill me for this, but your mercy and your chastening has come upon me, and suffering's come upon me, but praise God. It has a sanctifying effect. It, God has a way of getting our attention through suffering, doesn't he? You know, it's amazing when... Um, You know, when, when, before I, we realized that our granddaughter had cancer, you know, you go about your business and you go about your daily activities and, and it's amazing, you know, things are very important to you and things are very concerning to you. And then all of a sudden, when there is a life-threatening situation, it's amazing how those things aren't even on the radar screen. When I was in that emergency room and that doctor came in and said, your granddaughter has cancer and we don't think she's going to live to four. You know, all of a sudden, the car not running right just didn't mean much to me. The things of this world just didn't mean that much to me. I was paralyzed with grief and concern over that situation. It was like God had a way of getting our attention and saying, when all of this is over, this is what matters. And that's what suffering does. And you know... As much as I would wish otherwise, that had a sanctifying effect on our family that I can't even begin to tell you. Doctors and nurses heard the gospel. You know, and Sessie um, um, knows this. In, in a children's hospital, the cancer ward, people that are there, they become family. Like patients, they, you know, because their kids are all in there. And, and on that floor, you get to know others whose kids are suffering. And you become like a family. I mean, you get to know people very intimately because... 
and uh, you know, my son and, and Gail and I had opportunity to share the gospel with people whose children were suffering. And you know, the heartbreak of coming in two days later and seeing an empty bed. And you knew why. Suffering stops us dead in our tracks. And it causes us to think about what's really important. And all of a sudden, you know, all those things that I was so worried about just minutes ago, I couldn't even, they, they meant nothing. So, sanctification. Also, suffering conforms us to the likeness of his son. Romans 8.29, can anybody quote that? We're, yeah. 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 Right. Go ahead. Yeah, all things to work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Right. And that's right. And it goes along absolutely with what Ryan said as well. But that's exactly right. Is that it conforms us to the image of Christ. Christ was our suffering servant, wasn't he? Notice this, that it produces harvest of righteousness and peace for those trained by it. Uh, Hebrews 12, 11. It brings us to a more righteous state before God and it, and it brings us peace. Why does, why does suffering bring us peace? That sounds kind of like an oxymoron here. But how, why, why would, how does suffering bring us peace? It brings you to a position that you no longer have control. That's right. You have to trust. That's right. That's exactly right, Robert. It, it brings you to a place, you know, it's it, just like a crisis. You, you, you realize that you've, you have nowhere to go. And you fall into the arms of God and say, you know what, I, I, can't, I can't do this. Have your own way, Lord. Yeah, that's right. That's have your own way, Lord. Yeah. I'm the potter, or you're the potter, I'm the clay. And, right. Good song. But also, it's not just that we have inability to fix our situation. We don't have the responsibility to fix our situation. Right, right. Our job is not to control it, but to follow God. Absolutely. These times we stop trying to fix it ourselves. Amen. Amen. And I don't know about you, but I'm really good at self-sufficiency. Like, I can get going in my own strength better than anybody that I know. Say, God, I've got it from here. You just take a break, and man, I'm running with this thing, you know. And boy, I get myself in trouble every time when I do that. <laughs> we also know that suffering uh, or trials bring uh, faith to the forefront of our lives, and we, we see that faith. In Amen. Action. Amen. Absolutely. And you know, Robert, going along with that, or Bobby, is, is, the, is what we see in Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter. You know, when you see the suffering that all of those saints went through, and yet by faith they waited patiently, and, and were suffering, and, and were killed, uh, many of them, because of that. And then Romans 5, 6 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Amen. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Amen. That's a great verse to flesh out on the benefits of suffering. So, you know, when you're suffering, I hope you're encouraged that, you know, it, it's not fun. None of us would wish that, but you know what? Look for what God is doing through it. You know, instead of asking why, ask, what can I learn? 
How can I draw closer to you? What are the lessons that I can learn through my suffering? How can you use this for your glory and my good? Because God does work all things together for good to those that love him. And God never wishes us harm. God is the perfect keeper of the Hippocratic Oath. Amen? <laughs> you know, I guess for believers we could say that. Okay, um, where am I? I? I get all mixed up here. Okay, um, he achieve, it achieves eternal glory. Also, we see death is a part of life, at least for now, right? Um, and in, let's see, in, okay. The. The. Okay, am I stuck back there? I'm not, okay, why is that? The. All right. That's God saying, it's time to end. And you know what? It's like, 1014. So see, Lord, thank you. I don't need a clock. I have divine help. Um, Also, let me just say this. In suffering, we see God's providence and his purpose. It builds our hope and renews our strength, Isaiah 40. And suffering provides great opportunity to minister to others. You know, when you've gone through suffering, isn't it amazing how much more how much weight that carries when you come alongside of others who you know, are going through the same thing and how much of an encouragement and a strength you can be for them. Uh, because when you say to them, you know, I really understand, you really do. So, you know, we see a great attitude with that too. Um, and then also uh, thinking about the fate of the unsaved. Um, unbelievers obviously don't have a pleasant eternity. And, you know, our suffering ought to give us a little bit more of an awareness of the suffering that they're going to go through eternally without Christ. And and hence then motivate us to share the good word of God, the gospel with them. Okay, so um, I think we're out of time. And I'm sorry if you have any more questions, but we can pick it up. Um, Next week, what I want to start in, and I'll get all these notes straightened out, but next week I want to do one more issue of bioethics, and then we'll move on to some of the um, uh, other issues. I want to do a a series on stem cell research, because this has been an issue at the forefront of medicine, too, and this is something, as believers, we need to get a handle on. Um, Abortion, of course, being a huge issue today, And um, we need to make sure that we're rock solid on our understanding of what's going on out there and how we need to approach that particular issue. All right, so let's close in prayer and then I'll let you guys go. All right, well, Father, thank you for this time together, Lord. We just thank you for the counsel of your word that is so sufficient for all areas of faith and life. And Lord, even though we are 2,000 years removed from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ walking this earth, We realize that your word is infinite, that it deals with all of the technology today, that there is nothing conceived in the heart of man or advancements made that would outweigh the word of God, that would make it irrelevant, that would make it not applicable to our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for that. So I pray, Lord, that we as believers would see the sufficiency of your word and that we would strive always to live according to the counsel of your will. And Lord, as we look at this issue of euthanasia, that we would see the importance of uh, rendering care, compassion, and help to those who are ill and in need, 
And yet, Lord, understanding that you alone are the author of life and death. And uh, Lord, may you bless our time now in service and may our worship be productive and fruitful. And uh, Lord, we commit this to you and thank you for your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys. Well, thanks for being in here.